0: Hey, everyone. This is Ben Norton, and this is part two of the Empire and the Deep State series that I'm doing with Aaron Good, author of the very important book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. And as always, we're joined by our co-host, Seamus McGinnis. In the first part of the series, we gave a a very basic kind of overview of the kind of theoretical foundations of the model that Aaron has laid out in his book of the tripartite model of the state. What is the deep state? And we talked about what inspired him to theorize this and, and the idea of lawlessness and the decline of democracy. In this episode, what we're going to do is do basically a history of the U.S. deep state, going back to the formation of the United States as this colonial project up to today. I mean, it's a pretty ambitious undertaking. I think we are going to be able to accomplish it in about an hour here. And of course, we're gonna have other episodes in the future providing much more nuance and information about certain periods in this history of the deep state, right? Especially, you know, we'll focus on World War II and the Bretton Woods system, we'll focus on uh the Cuban Missile Crisis, we'll focus on Bay of Pigs, we'll focus on Watergate, we'll focus on JFK. We'll have separate episodes about all of those things. But what we're gonna to try to do today is outline a very rough history of the US deep state. And Aaron I wanted to begin this part talking about another important concept in your book that is foundational to understanding this analysis of the, U- the U.S. empire and the deep state, and that is your concept of exceptionism, which is not the same thing as exceptionalism—the idea, you know, that the U.S. is the greatest country on earth. This very, you know, patriotic kind of chauvinist idea. You have a very different definition of exceptionism which is related to this idea we were speaking about in the first part of lawlessness and, of course, the deep state being built on this idea of covert lawlessness and its links to the state. So explain what you mean by American exception and exceptionism, and that can help root our understanding today of the history of the deep state.
1: Right. Well, the uh, the term the exception comes from Carl Schmitt, who is notorious for being the legal theorist behind Nazi Germany, and he was writing at the time of the Weimar Republic, and he wrote that in times of extreme peril, uh, you have the need for emergency measures. And so writing about the sovereign, you know, who is actually sovereign, he wrote, sovereign is he who decides the exception, the exception being the exception to the rule of law when the state is empowered to act in whatever ways it sees fit in order to protect the state from existential threats and in the 1920s that existential threat due to the uh, terrible settlement of world war I, was uh and the economic crises that it brought on to germany that threat was uh, the threat of a socialist revolution and so he is writing with an implicit understanding that the oligarchy of capitalism is the state that's important to, to mention when you talk about schmidt and this idea of the exception it wasn't as though Germany was really at risk of not having any kind of government. It's that Germany was at risk of having a government that would sweep away the prevailing oligarchy, regime, establishment of Germany and replace it with one that was socialist. And so the entire ruling class, and then the people who work for the ruling class, like legal theorists, they are mobilized against this. And Schmidt comes out with his idea of the exception which argues that you need to, to protect the state at all costs and that in times of emergency leaders need to pursue this. And this is not just a neoconservative or, or what we would think of today as a neoconservative or a right-wing point of view. we associate it with the Nazis, but it gets down to a fundamental question, which we'll get deeper into in later chapters, but in a liberal society, when can the state act uh, with emergency powers now in America, in the U.S., after World War II, the idea of the a state of emergency was pretty much enshrined as a extant foreign policy grand strategy. That the U.S. was in a, a, a twilight struggle against the global communist conspiracy and that any methods that would be used to uh, avail the U.S. in this struggle would be justified on the basis of the emergency that they were faced with. And so exceptionism is the term that i use to describe the institutionalization of state lawlessness more or less and uh this is different for obviously different from american exceptionalism it doesn't you could argue that i could say it doesn't derive from that word but it, it it's meant to sort of ironically um invoke that term of american exceptionalism because The American exceptionalism that we think of is that America is somehow special from every other country, that other countries might pursue things. I mean, Obama even says things like this. Other countries wanted to go out and expand their territory, but we don't seek an inch of anybody else's land because we're different. We're America. And this begins with, you could maybe trace it back to John Winthrop, right? The city on a hill, a shining city on a hill. And then Reagan takes that concept. Um, And, you know, it was by virtue of the enormous resources that the U.S. had. And a very uh, and a culture and organizational models of of business and and governance that came from England and a, a Europe, where uh, polities were in competition and war with each other and had to become more and more efficiently organized, and it, it propelled technology. This constant state of war in Europe over centuries that when you transport that kind of a system to the U.S., it's but they're they're far advanced and very much more efficient than the people the than the, the societies that are living here of indigenous people and so it's kind of a foregone conclusion that the it, that the the europeans are going to take over uh north america especially latin in latin america to some extent too but it's you know the north american situation you you see this and america because it's like basically an offshoot of britain they are uh uh, they they are very powerful with a lot of resources and they take over, you know, they go from sea to shining sea and they consider themselves like the greatest country on the earth, on earth. They uh, win, you know, they come in on the winning side in both world wars. And this contributes to Americans sense of like how great they are. And uh, so these myths of American greatness and exceptionalism exist and they kind of obscure the the reality of it, which is not democracy and, so-called free enterprise prevailing and creating prosperity for everyone, but it's actually an empire just like any other empire, which isn't to say it's exceptionally uh, horrendous as an empire in terms of its actual fundamental basis. It is horrendous, exceptionally horrendous in terms of the power that the U.S. had. I mean, empires are empires, and they, they share a common disregard for the humanity of subjected peoples, and that's that. That goes for the U.S. and other empires as well. But the difference with the U.S. is its enormous amount of power. And another difference might be that it denies that it's an empire. And and exceptionism allows the U.S. to continue to deny that it's an empire. Although who really believes that now? You really would wonder, uh, because this sort of more gangsterism, the more gangsterish things are done covertly, oftentimes not always. You still have like you know us dropping napalm in Vietnam or uh, the Iraq war and so on, but a lot of things are done covertly so that we can say that we didn't do them and uh, try to maintain this halo for ourselves. And since the media pretty much serves the same forces that animate the empire, they go along and they share cover stories as gospel. I mean, that's the real fake news that that we've got to worry about is the fake news that obscures exceptionism, the, the criminality of the state. And so exceptionism is a key part of the tripartite state, and it really gives the deep state a veto power over uh, democratic potential, democratic democratic threats to its hegemony over state and society. Uh, So this exceptionism is key. So
2: turning to, in, in chapter one, you give sort of a broad genealogy of the American deep political system. And as you've already, we've already discussed some of slavery. You mentioned Samuel Zamuri, who started uh, Cuyamel Banana Company, which would become United Fruit. Uh, you also mentioned the sugar industries. So if you just want to give a broad outline, because there tends to be a lot of, uh, the descendants of this end up being people, like you mentioned, Henry Cabot Lodge is descended from Boston Brahmins who were involved in the opium trade. And even... As Greg Polgrain writes in uh, in JFK versus Dulles, uh, Alan Dulles, who is, you know, could be argued as being one of the biggest, you know, opium traffickers, if you see his organization as backing it, um, is descended from either, I, I believe his name's Joseph Dulles, and he's either, they can't figure it out, but in what is now Indonesia, is one of the biggest either opium or slave traders of that era. So there is a lot of descendants in the depolitical system as we know it uh, in, in the CIA era. But prior to that, what is sort of the, the genesis of the American depolitical system and how does it sort of lead up to, uh, from, a, from a privatized realm to more of a political realm before it becomes the federal level with we see things like a political machine. So just sort of a broad overview uh, curious how that came to be.
1: Well, the tripartite state, its three components do have origins that you can trace back to the beginnings of uh, English colonialism in the United States. So the public state, uh, you have like the House of Burgesses and you know these different colonial governments uh, w- before independence uh, that were uh, based along the same lines as uh, prevailed in England. And this is the public state in the United States. This is where you had political decisions arrived at through some amount of uh, consensus and public debate and uh, participation in some ways, even though it was always limited who it would be. You did have like a, you know, elements, democratic elements of and public elements of uh, this of the system of, of government. And you also had a security state, um, which was the different militias that were organized, especially to defend the frontier. And you could say that the English administration, which had a kind of a veto power and access to British military, that this was like part of the security state that prevailed during that time as well. But you also had private power uh, in the colonial era and in the early you know, US era. And these are often related to commercial ventures that, that some of the most important uh, economic developments in the United States were related to illicit or semi-illicit economies, things that would later become outlawed, especially the slave trade and the opium trade. So the opium trade is uh, very big in New England in terms of who was financing this. And they were able to take Turkish opium and sell it to China because the Chinese, the, the British weren't allowed to sell Turkish opium. They were only allowed to sell opium because of some weird uh mercantilist regulations that they had put into their into their government and so this gave an avenue for americans to get in on the opium trade in china by working with turkish opium and uh this was a case where okay the laws in the u.s weren't set up against it so you could say it's not organized crime but in order to do this they had to work with uh people in China who were part of the uh, Chinese underworld because it wasn't, you know, they they tried to crack down on these things in different ways and they had to have these different go-betweens that were connected to organized crime. And this money came to uh, endow major universities like Yale University came to be used to build uh, one of the the first railroad in the U.S., the first industry in the North, uh, the Lowell Mills, which people learn kids learn about when they're in school, that gets financed by opium. They don't really put that in U.S. high school history books, but it was opium that financed that. And so, and the slit, they also profited from the slave trade. So the 1619 people at New York times would say that they would point out that since the North, they would try to argue that since the North benefited from the slave trade, that this must be like the main reason behind like the revolution and other things, which is overstating it. But there was that big slave economy and it was very lucrative. I mean, the two most lucrative things in early America, the early us uh, were opium and, uh, and the slave trade, you know, things related to slavery and the cotton, cotton trade as well, based intimately connected to slavery, and uh, this is a lot. Uh, this also gives rise to American industry. So the first industry in the United States, just like it was the first industry in in Britain, was the textile industry, and as I said, financed by opium money to build these Lowell mills where especially women would work in the textile industry, and that is the beginning of a sort of mechanized primitive but still mechanized uh, modes of production in in America in the US and exactly the kind of industries that the colonial masters of uh, from Britain did not want the US to have this is part of this is why there's really more reasons for the the revolution than just slavery the US had a class of people that didn't want to be deeply indebted and you know providing just raw materials forever for Britain and so mercantilist policies also fueled the revolution uh, in, in the United States of the Revolutionary World War for independence. It's not a real revolution. Uh, and so the, these deep, these uh, political, illicit political economies are intertwined with industrialization. And later you have uh, foreign investment and foreign investment uh, that's, that's more lucrative is always involves a, a bit of coercion and violence and so on. So the, the fruit and sugar industries talked about Sam's and Murray, but all the sugar people in Cuba, uh, and, and I mean Haiti. Look at look at Haiti. What was Haiti? Why was Haiti so lucrative for the French? It was where all the sugar was made, uh, and, and produced. And this was the most valuable colony that the, the French had. And in fact, the Louisiana Territory was really only useful to the French because it su- supplied foodstuffs for slaves in Haiti. And so once they lost Haiti, uh, when uh, Toussaint Louverture, right, uh, when he rises up and they have that revolution in haiti slave revolt that succeeds uh napoleon doesn't really have much use for uh louisiana so he sells it to finance his other wars right but this is like but it was so much violence that was used to run haiti i mean this slave regime it was so it was combustible because you had so few white people overseeing this massive slave force that eventually it collapses on itself and uh the the sugar industry later would be dominated by mafia connected people. So when other U.S. people's uh, interests set up sugar plantations in Cuba, the mob worked there as well, because the mob could set up casinos and havens for drug trafficking, too, if need be. But also the mob would provide uh, goons to stop any sort of organized labor or populist movement or democratic movements uh, that might get in the way of what the, the companies wanted in Nicaragua under Somoza. That was a huge deal there. The the mob was very connected to the Somoza regime, which was connected to uh, other United States elites. I mean, there's that famous quote from Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was not, he, he had the good neighbor policy, which wasn't just PR. And he had, he was opposed to colonialism, but he also recognized the realities of U.S. history and European history and colonialism. So he has that quote about Somoza. He may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. And you could you could say that that's meant that that uh, paints FDR in a more predatory light than liberals uh, like to think of him. Or you could see him as explaining away that sort of thing and, you know, wanting a slight change in policy. I see him as being progressive and not really in the the, the mold of like the post-World War II imperialists, but that's, a I guess, a whole different subject.
0: Well, a, a quick note on that, Aaron. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned the case of Nicaragua and the Somoza regime's ties to, to the mafia. Well, also, the Batista regime in Cuba was very closely linked to the mafia. And for people listening, I mean, they probably have seen Godfather Part Two. you know, this classic movie. And there's a scene where the U.S. mafia is meeting in Cuba, and they have this cake with the image of Cuba on the cake, right? Like an icing. And then they slice up the cake, Representing Cuba and give a, a piece to everyone in that meeting. I mean, it's a very clear cinematic representation of the links between this kind of U.S. colonial regime in Cuba and the, the U.S. You know, organized crime networks. But, um, you know, just I didn't want to interrupt your thought, but you also mentioned FDR and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Delano family and opium.
1: Yeah, they made, that's where their fortune came from. The, the, you know, John Kerry, uh, he's like John Forbes Kerry, right? The Forbes family is opium. So, I mean, it, it, the affinity between gangsters and capitalists is, has been there historically. And uh, it, it, it's not hard to see why. They're just they're businessmen and they exploit people to make a profit in whether you're a corporation or you're a criminal syndicate. So it's really the the affinity between these groups when you stop and think about it and you just set aside your kind of American social conditioning or whatever it's like oh yeah it makes perfect sense actually so that's that if you have that frame of mind then it's not that hard to understand like gosh why were it was like rockefeller and other wall street types why were they trying to like reestablish the drug uh the the drug connection in the golden triangle right after world war 2 you know like but but if you get that they're always kind of intertwined, uh, informally before World War II. And the intelligence services, the, the post-war national security state, really just institutionalizes these things, including these darker elements like collaboration with the mafia. Uh, this this comes about, and it's a real, it's a funda- it's a big pillar of the American, the American deep state. And um, the 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 other families up there, like uh, the Russell Trading Company, they sponsored. Um, they they pay for the Skull and Bones. You know, they they like have an endowment. They gave Yale all of its land, and they endowed Skull and Bones with a certain amount of money so we could exist. And these guys go on a lot disproportionately to work in like intelligence and other circle high, other higher circles. And uh, you know, people want to mystify some of these secret societies, but I, I think in general they they represent you know, wealth and uh, cliquishness, collaboration, social elements. Yes. It's it's
0: social reproduction. This is how the oligarchy reproduces itself.
1: Right. Exactly. And so this is, and it's, it's not, it's not a random coincidence. It may be ironic, but it's also not a coincidence that the, the skull and bones, for example, is endowed by opium traffic because when it comes down to it, like oligarchy and in, civil, in any civilization, your oligarchs and your, your political economic elites are the people who are in a position institutionally to be able to accumulate the surplus of the economy by, without putting in requisite amount of work, that they're able to uh, have a position that allows them to accumulate work and thereby exploit people by doing very little. And that is that's the that's the situation that you the position that you want to be in. That's the essence of uh, being an elite in civilization. Is you don't have a job like basket maker or farmer. That your job is to retain, maintain your hegemony and your privileged position vis a vis the rest of society. And these are fundamental questions to civilization. And the American, uh, you know, experience represents one way that that has played out I mean it's it really it, you you can't it doesn't explain everything but class you know the whole of history as class struggle is something that does actually uh hold pretty pretty true uh, and you can look at things that way it, it it's not helpful to think that everything is that and that, that is the only thing you should ever look at but uh it's important to note that that this is a this is a, a fundamental problem of civilization is the the power of elites and and the surplus of the economy and the the extra wealth that it generates. And these economies, these illicit economies can generate a lot of wealth and power and they do. And the people at the very top always find ways uh, in a capitalist society to incorporate this. I think I mentioned this on your show, Ben, but it was very funny when Joe Rogan said like, man, you know that the banks are somehow involved with the drug trade because like they're just not going to leave that money laying on the table. And when the financial crisis happened, it turns out that that's what kept the economy afloat was hot money. And, uh, it's only, it only becomes noticeable when all the other money stops, but of course it's it's accumulating all the time. And who's really getting all that, getting all that money? And so this is the the basis of this oligarchy in the United States, and it goes, it, it propels the U.S. to expand from sea to shining sea. The, the the frontier acts as an outlet for extra labor and other problems for the United States. But then once they do get from sea to shining sea, the U.S. keeps going. And that is the U.S. empire that, that, that begins in the you know, early 1900s or late 1890s, this this international empire. And these sort of uh, globally minded elites eventually are able to affect America's entry into World War One. And uh, decisively uh, and in a way that really wasn't in the best interest of American democracy, the American people, but it was in the best interest of J.P. Morgan. Uh, and other anglophile elites and uh, that sets the stage for world war ii and the u.s entry into world war ii which further aggrandizes the state and causes more organization of the military and and, uh, massive industrial production to deal really solves the depression and uh in that it was planned by these people that they would go for a global empire and that episode is really important the u.s the fateful u.s decision to not just expand like Spanish-American war style or dollar diplomacy style into Latin America uh, or with saddling Europe with debt like after World War I, but that they're going to actually go for the holy grail of hegemony after World War II. This is a fateful moment and it, it gives rise to the deep state.
0: Yeah, well, I I'd, I'd really want to talk about that period. It's extremely important, but to kind of just go chronologically, I do want to go back a little bit to the the 18th and 19th centuries. But before I do that, just because you mentioned skull and bones Aaron, I mean, not not only is it, of course, closely linked to intelligence and the opium trade, but of course, I'll be remiss if I didn't mention that they have long been accused of secretly harboring the skull of Geronimo, the indigenous leader, which, you know, there, there has been debate about, but just the fact that it's cl- so clearly associated with the remains of an indigenous leader, also for me, it really... It's the symbol of how this U.S. capitalist oligarchy is so deeply linked to the drug trade and the CIA and the genocide of indigenous peoples. I should add that there has even been there have been allegations which are I think there there's a lot of debate about whether or not they had Geronimo's skull. I think it's actually uh, there's more evidence for that. There isn't much evidence, but there have been accusations for them having Pancho Villa's skull. Pancho Villa was, of course, one of the main leaders of the Mexican Revolution. So, I mean, for me, it really just, again, reflects that kind of, a, you know, colonial um, context that a lot of these uh, these elite organizations are situated in and how they're closely linked to organized crime. But, you know, on the subject of uh, organized crime in the state and on the subject of Mexico, in in your book, um, you, you know, you talked about, Uh, the opium trade and the slave trade and sugar. But I also want to briefly address two other examples that you discuss in your book, which are, of course, the expansionist policies and attacks on indigenous peoples in the United States and the Barbary pirates. So you point out, well, three examples and the the Mexican-American War, which is related to U.S. expansionism, of course. So you point out in your book here that early in U.S. history, The security state was more securely tethered to the public state, and it was used in instances like you mentioned the Barbary pirates attacks on American Indians to promote expansion as in Andrew. And then you this is also very important. Andrew Jackson's attack on Spanish Florida pokes Mexican-American war, basically stealing half of northern Mexico. And you point out that the cases of Florida and Texas are very relevant because no official authorization. Was given to Andrew Jackson or the Texas rebels, and you say that their actions clearly seem to have emerged from deep political forces. And then you, of course, talk about Andrew Jackson's negation of the treaties with Native peoples. So maybe briefly, you can talk about those cases as well, and then we can go up to the Civil War after.
1: Yeah, no, these that's that's great, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned these because they do should they show the way that the security state and even the public state could be, uh, basically, suborned by deep political power so if we're going to go chronologically uh the barbary pirates i don't have a whole lot to say about it except for that it represented the interests of the u.s you know Mm -hmm. a merchant capacity right in the going in the mediterranean they were being kidnapped uh, by these barbary pirates in present-day tunisia algeria and libya and then they would be held for ransom. And this was actually taking up a big chunk of the federal government's budget at the time, which was only really paid for through tariffs and the sale of Western land. And so they were just taking this money and it was like a transfer payment to pirates. So kind of, under, you know, it's not that hard to understand why Thomas Jefferson would have, even though he was a small government guy, he would have been like, okay, we've got to deal with this, with this problem. Um, but in the, the Western expansion of the U.S. and Andrew Jackson going into Florida This is like Andrew Jackson is sent ostensibly to deal with like cross-border Indian raids, but he just goes ahead and and goes into Florida and overthrows the Spanish uh, colonial government there. And uh, that leads to the U.S. This is something the U.S. does repeatedly, and they do this in the Mexican-American War, too. But you basically fight a war over some territory and you win the war. And then afterwards, you give them some money uh, as though it were some sort of deal that had been struck. That was what happened with the the spanish in this case with florida and that's how the u.s gets florida now the the texas case is interesting because it really does represent deep political power because it was done privately like this was not an official venture of the united states government this was people like uh moses austin who bought a lot of land in texas and they wanted to establish, they brought in slaves as well. And it wasn't, it was sparsely populated. And so quickly they became like a big, a big chunk, if not a majority of the population were Anglo settlers and wanting to set up slaves. So this is Texas and the, the Alamo mythology is all really horrendous. it was really a slavers, uh, you know, venture. And they even said, I mean, uh, Sam Houston said that the Lone Star Republic brings glory to the Anglo-Saxon race. And this is this is a representation of what could be called the slave power. It was called the slave power in the United States. And so these people who were kind of I don't know, they could almost be called conspiracy theorists today that wrote about how bad the slave power was in the South and that slave slavery, the slave aristocracy in the South was behind a lot of atrocities. Like, for example, the murder of uh, Zachary Taylor, president who was apparently poisoned. Uh, when he favored, you know, he was against the Missouri, or sorry, he was against the um, Compromise of 1850, but then he dies and then the other guy flip-flops. Parenti has a really great essay on this. It seems pretty clear. Zack Taylor was poisoned by the slave power, which is really deep political power. It's political power without any sort of statutory or constitutional basis that nonetheless can be decisive. And here they apparently killed the president. And so this is, this really is, this is, deep political power part of the deep political system it wasn't carried out by some uh you know country well it might have been an informal kind of organ- intelligence organization that did it but either way uh this is something that is not sanctioned by the federal government and is operating this this way and the the idea behind texas and the settling of texas they went in and they declared a lone star republic uh, but that only lasts for, you know, about a decade or so. And then James Polk comes in and annexes Texas and the Southerners had plans to use Texas to break it into a bunch of smaller states so that they could have a, a majority in the Senate and they could make sure that slavery was secure because they were very obsessed with this idea of protecting the institution of slavery because that was their their livelihood. And so Polk, you know, you you have to believe that elements of the slave power were it behinds texas not just the people settling it themselves that they wanted to break up texas into smaller states and use it to uh, extend their political domination uh, in the u.s and just to secure their position in perpetuity and then he fights the spanish Amer- or the mexican-american war in like 1845 1846 and this is a total this is basically they after they annex texas there's a, a phony incident where they there's a disputed territory and supposedly some kind of skirmish involving Zachary Taylor. And this the U.S. uses this as a pretext to just attack all of the territory that Mexico has. So they basically take over California and they sack Mexico City. They send people down, landing at about the exact same spot that Hernan Cortez landed, do the same march that Cortez did to Mexico City. Uh, But an even more dramatic outcome than for Cortez, because Cortez first had to retreat and then came back and then everybody was dying of smallpox, etc. And so he was able to dominate, you know, uh, Tenochtitlan, right, the old Aztec capital. Zachary Taylor, uh, like what, 300, 200 years later, 300 years later, almost 250 years later, uh, goes through and marches that same path, forces Mexico to surrender. And they sign a deal with them, Treaty of uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo. And it gives them fifteen million dollars uh, for all those western states like you know, Utah Nevada, New Mexico, California, especially half of Mexico. Yeah, is the, and the best. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to diss the rest of Mexico, but really the the best half from a economic perspective, from a geographical perspective. And they give them fifteen dollars. I say $15 dollars. $15 but it's this, which is the same amount that they gave the French for the Louisiana Purchase. But unlike the French case, this was not like a deal. This was like, we just sacked you and uh, here's $15 million, which to me shows that they knew that this was a dubious proposition. Like they still had concepts of international sovereignty and so on. This is why Abe Lincoln at the time was in Congress. And he was saying, like, show me that they called him Spotty Lincoln because he was saying in Congress, show me the spot where this attack took place. You know, He was actually against this war and a lot of people were against this war, like Frederick Douglas and... Henry David Thoreau went to jail. That was about this war. It was clearly a war of conquest that was illegitimate, but the U.S. did it anyway. and It was propelled by, more, by powerful actors that were more powerful than Congress and that were backing the person in the White House. And so you get this conundrum in politics in the United States, which is even when something is done by a public official like a James Polk, like when is this done by interests, that are in the private realm and not really related to democracy and the national interest understood that way. That's deep political power and it propels the US uh, and US policy oftentimes, even before this is institutionalized in a more uh, formal imperial mechanism after World War
2: II. Um, well, going off this era a little bit still, uh, Alihu Root, the uh, Theodore Roosevelt Secretary of State, he was also one of the founders of the International Court of Justice. Uh, but he kind of exemplifies the, like, how U.S. international policy plays out here. And specifically going back to something I talked about in terms of like the, the neutrality of the rules of the game. Very similarly, there's this sort of idea that, that U.S. property relations are universally applicable. And so he very uh, explicitly writes, we have a right to uh, specifically go into Mexico, China, and Cuba But at the time the the main issues are expansion into china and um, building infrastructure they're investing there uh, and basically going beyond the traditional colonial relation of just kind of pillage or exact tribute out of people and actually invest and then try to get returns out of that which is sort of the new capitalist form of of imperialism but he specifically says a quote minimum standard of treatment is expected of all foreign governments who are faced with u.s u.s investors trying to uh pour money into their country. And I, I think that's like a, a big turning point here is how we start to look globally, like we said, with the Spanish-American War and it starts to expand out and we eventually land in, in, in World War I. But specifically this principle of the U.S. property relations and the way that we think about capital accumulation and investment has a universal applicability. And whether or not you're under U.S. sovereignty, the U.S. sovereign applies to you out of some minimum standard of treatment and that that is some universal principle and i think that's sort of a not that the ideological backing matters that much in comparison to the material power relations here but that gives people again like that matters it acts as a a force on them as a story they can tell themselves to justify what they're doing as somehow again just like in, in mexico they're somehow aware of of that that maybe their claims can be a little bit like you said, a little bit dubious, but um, I guess, Aaron, if you want to jump in there. That that brings a
1: couple of good points because the Spanish American war going from these aspects dovetails naturally with the Spanish American war and what that, that era represents. So in the United States, you had, they, they go from sea to shining sea and this by getting this with the, the Mexican American war, they basically have gone from sea to shining sea And it's notable that after taking over California and signing this treaty with Mexico, it's just a couple, a few years later that they send Admiral Perry into Tokyo Bay, Edo Bay. And this is a cataclysm for the Japanese. This really represents like the end of the Tokugawa shogunate in Japan. Uh, because the shogun was, the shogun in Japan, his entire regime and legitimacy rested upon his military dominance. And when it was clear that these, quote unquote, barbarians were not going to leave them alone because they knew what had happened with the opium wars and so on. It was just Japan was kind of lucky because they were remote and they didn't have a lot of valuable resources. So they kind of got left alone. And that when the U.S. saw how much money there was to be made in Asia, they wanted to go over there in California. That was part of the motivation to actually get California was trade with the Pacific, which is of course a huge part up to the present day. And wanting to dominate the Pacific and commerce in the Pacific that is still a huge deal for the United States. And you know this helps to explain all this business with China, and also what we do in World War II. But they send the, they send Admiral Perry in to force the Japanese to sign unfavorable treaties to the United States uh, with the United States. And it leads to, you know, the whole reformation of Japanese society and their industrialization. And basically they copy the U.S. and Western imperialism themselves. But the bigger the point that I want to get is that right away they wanted to expand commercially in a pretty imperialistic ways and in in pretty imperialistic ways. And this is still like four decades before the the Spanish-American War, which launches in 1898. But so you have this expedition and some brief moves towards trying to do more in the Pacific, but really things in America had to be settled first. The question of slavery was going to play out the civil war. Uh, and then once that does though, you have the reconstruction era and the gilded age, you know, it's kind of coterminously, but sometimes they're put as like first reconstruction and then the gilded age, but really this sort of corporate development is also taking place during the reconstruction era and further settlement to the West and by the end of the 19th century, you have the closing of the frontier. The fact that there's no more Western expansion, that it's all settled. The Indians are really no longer a threat in any serious way. And the transcontinental railroad is built. And the U.S. is now really a, a continental empire. And the But there were, with the frontier, with the end of the frontier, you have the frontier's functions no longer... Uh, Serving Because the frontier, the fact that it wasn't always settled, was useful for American elites. It dealt with surplus labor and other contradictions in the economy and in the capitalist system. You could always light out for the West. If things were bad and the only options available were unattractive in these cities and cities were overcrowded and people were were miserable, you could always go to the West and farm and have some uh, escape valve that way and a pressure valve. But with the end of the frontier, Uh, You have crises in America, economic crises, uh, different uh, panics, like the panic of whatever year, you know, in the late 1800s and different uh, financial problems, you know, brought on by problems with capitalism. And there was a question of what you were going to do. You could try to accept the rise of labor in the United States and use its strength to foster more consumption and thus more production and sort of solidify uh, capitalist production that way and wealth and profits to a degree, but also boosted by consumption of the, the workers in America. Or you could go abroad and seek markets elsewhere and seek to dominate the resources of other regions and, uh, and, and not and, and let that sort of process take the place of what the frontier used to do. And this is a major thesis of American diplomatic history: the closing of the frontier thesis. It's by, really famous for the Wisconsin School, William Appleman Williams. We can get more into this at, at a later point, but the 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 point is that in around 1898, when the Spanish-American War breaks out, we've already annexed Hawaii a couple of years earlier, which is part of the same phenomenon. And this represents the victory of. Economic elites in shaping the way America would go? Uh, domestic production and prosperity or empire?
0: I think this point is so crucial because there is this notion that you sometimes hear from liberals that the U.S. is not an empire, right? You, you, you mentioned, you know, Obama claims that the United States doesn't expand. Well, first of all, that's absurd when we see the neocolonialist policies that the U.S. carries out around the world in terms of coups and, and all those meddling operations that's obvious but also okay yeah the u.s is not territorially expanding now but it continued to territorially expand right up into the 20th century i mean you mentioned the annexation of hawaii and of course puerto rico is still a colony but even statehood the idea of 50 states is very recent it's a hundred years less than a hundred years old so it, what's interesting for me is i think you really hit the nail on the head in this book in in arguing that as you write here at the turn of the century this is the 19th century with manifest destiny at, and the closing of the frontier finally achieved the US began to project its power globally so by establishing this territorial contiguous empire although i mean hawaii and puerto rico and virgin islands are not contiguous but the sea C- designing Xi territorial empire then the US began expanding internationally in a way that's not unlike the european empires but the thing is the, the liberals who claim that the u.s doesn't have a, an empire like the european empires well yeah it is different it's this era of neocolonialism as ncruma articulated it but that's because that empire that european style empire was already consolidated in the 18th and 19th centuries and right. 20th but go ahead Seamus.
2: Right. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I I think with us talking about the end of the frontier here, um, as we already talked about, the big inflection point is, do we just expand outward into the global south like the European empires did? Or do we also assert dominance over the European, you know, the former colonial powers? And that is really what shapes into the unipolar world in that era. Um, So kind of as like a, a last point to close out here, Uh, Aaron, if you want to talk a little bit, since we talked about up to World War I, um, the depolitical system has been pretty embedded in American politics. As you talk about in the book, local political machines are really where that starts to be institutionalized. But then you also point out that J.P. Morgan uh, and and his cronies, for lack of a better word, pushed the U.S. to abandon its neutrality for its own interests in World War I. And then on the other side of the war, uh, you wrote about and you just mentioned earlier how they imposed debts at the Treaty of Versailles on the European powers. And it's not just that they imposed debts that led to the Great Depression, but as the economist Michael Hudson has written, that's a pretty intentional choice that they knew that the European powers would A, default on it, and B, that it would destabilize their economy because it's impossible to keep your balance of payments at all stabilized when you have that level of of debt payments going out to the US uh, and to US banks, which were already sopping up all of the deposit inducing, uh, uh, basically London as a financial center collapsed in World War One because they had to freeze all of their short term uh, interest rate um, um, arbitrage, so it's a whole different issue, <laughs> but essentially like the power has transferred already to New York, and it continues to suck all of the wealth out of the European powers. So. In terms of it being an intentional destabilization, uh, I think the idea was it would happen at any cost, uh, whether or not they knew exactly what that cost would be in in terms of leading to World War II and the Great Depression. So, how does all of this play out, coming from the closing of the frontier and culminating in the institutionalization at the federal level uh, with the Cold War and everything? How does this? Transfer into a federal and global level institutionalization of USD. Well,
1: we and we'll go over some of these in later chapters in greater detail. But the shorter answer is that the U.S. We've we mentioned the Spanish-American War, and let's think about what that actually did. The U.S. is supposedly when when you brought up how Elihu Root said something about a standard uh, minimum standard of treatment. I would guess that that was a reference to the Spanish situation in Cuba because the reason, the pretext for the Spanish-American War was actually that the Cuban uh, colony, the Spanish uh, domination of Cuba and occupation was so brutal that the U.S. was justified to intervene. And so that, I would guess, is what's behind somebody like Root talking about minimum standards of treatment because you kind of wonder why would he even really be saying that that doesn't go along with this sort of commercial fundamentalism. But, you know, it's a reference to what the, what the Spanish were really doing. But when that war begins, the first shots, as I recall, are fired in Manila Bay, um, which is, if you look on a map, very far from uh, Havana, okay, from Cuba. It's uh, the East Indies versus the West Indies, you could say, more or less. And so this is notable that the U.S. already has these designs going back to like Admiral Perry going into Tokyo Bay and then, you know, with this seizing this Philippine colony, uh, which the U.S. took for a long time.
0: Yeah, very quick note. I I want you to continue that thought. But just as a journalist, I should mention that, of course, the Spanish-American War is also what gives birth to yellow journalism. William Randolph Hearst, who becomes this media tycoon, the kind of original version of uh, Rupert Murdoch, he gets his start. At least he becomes very well known for promoting basically fake news and propaganda, promoting the u.s uh, side of the spanish-american war sensationalizing i mean obviously the spanish colonialists were horrible but sensationalizing all of this to promote the interests of the u.s empire so it also shows just to get another element it shows the the role of the media as well in in all of this when we're talking about the deep political system and and the role of media propaganda and helping to lubricate all those operations
1: and note also that the Hearst fortune was not, he, he wasn't the guy who's like, I want to sell newspapers and make great newspapers. He got a ton of money from his father who was involved in gold mines, et cetera. <laughs> uh, so if you ever have seen Deadwood, the great series on HBO, uh, George Hearst is, I believe, the, fa- the actual father of William Randolph Hearst. And uh, he's a you know, fictionalized version of him, but more or less accurate in terms of, of showing his uh, monomaniacal pursuit of gold and wealth. Which is what William Randolph Hearst had. So he was—he didn't pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He had a whole lot of money and then promoted his own and his class's interests with his media empire. And that's a recurring theme in uh, in capitalist societies. Now the the Spanish American War is uh, the U.S. still does—they're uh, confused about what to do with these places because part of the American mythology is all about not being an empire and being opposed to the old world empires, which is it's contradictory because the U S practices imperialism, but they like to have a anti-imperialist posture. And so with the Philippines, it's a, it's, there's a lot of opposition to this. The anti-imperialist league emerges over the question of the Philippines. They basically give Cuba fake independence, meaning that they're supposed to have like a puppet government or a government. They don't call it a puppet one. And then the, the Platt amendment and other acts allowed the U.S. or gave the U.S. congressional authorization to intervene in Cuban politics at any point. And Cuba had to sign this treaty that the U.S. would be allowed to intervene militarily whenever they wanted, uh, which is not really sovereignty at all. But then the U.S. could be like, well, we're not an empire because they're not a colony. But okay, well, whatever. Now, the Philippines, this was a question for McKinley. Was he going to annex it or not? And he ultimately decides to annex it. And uh, the idea, this is when the English were saying, take on the white man's burden. And McKinley says, well, I talked to God all night and he told me I needed to annex them. We can't let the Spanish have it again. And we got to help our little brown brothers. This was like, I think that Taft was actually the one who used that phrase, but this is all of a piece with the the, the little brown brothers, white man's burden as a sort of rationalization for uh, to, to justify U.S., colonialism in in the philippines even though it was only supposed to be temporary but this and this goes right into the open door policy which when you said that uh elihu root was talking about the universality of american you know liberal commercial uh conventions this is really uh, the open door policy of secretary of state john hay is most famous for this And people have argued reasonably that the open door is basically a microcosm of American foreign policy uh, when it comes to commerce, that every country must, there there must be a door to other countries and it must be open. And uh, the Boxer Rebellion is an example of what this means in practice when there were there was anti-foreign sentiment in China and you have the Boxer Uprising uh, because of just how the Western powers have immiserated this once very powerful and wealthy uh chinese empire um you have these a thug buddy alliance really of like germans americans french uh, british all teaming up to uh crush the boxer rebellion and really brutalize these people they were tortured or executed after the fact and they also saddled the chinese with these huge debts that they would have to pay off like they never paid them off they basically write them off in world war ii because they're an ally against japan but they ended up paying like trillions of dollars worth of gold because of the Boxer Rebellion to the Western countries. So if, you know what the U.S. has done to China is just horrendous. But this open door policy is presented as like an open door. It sounds very benign, and free trade sounds like a nice thing. And we shouldn't we all be free to trade? But what does this really mean in practice? U.S. or U.S. people they don't know because their leaders euphemize it. But for people in China. And the global south they understand what this means and it's not friendly and it's not uh something that's uh consensual and mutually beneficial it's uh it's imperialism and the u.s pursues more of this internationally and it it gets more entangled in international affairs and this leads to world war one where the u.s is supposed to be neutral but they're really backing the brits and uh, the Secretary of State resigns over this, William Jennings Bryan, because Woodrow Wilson is back in the British more. But the British are getting uh, money from, they're being loaned money by J.P. Morgan. And after this war, there's the debts are huge. But Morgan, for whatever reason, it's like economic fundamentalism about debt. Instead of forgiving the, your allies' debts, which they can't pay, the U.S. keeps them in place. And the only way to allow this system to work, so the, the U.S. actually puts not Germany in debt, but the allies in debt. And the allies put Germany in debt. And so Germany has to pay the allies, but the allies have to collect money from Germany because the allies have to pay the US. Michael Hudson does a great job explaining this and uh, he's a brilliant guy on all these issues.
0: And really, really quickly, Aaron. Yeah, I do want to talk more about that. Um, we, we should definitely talk about World War One. It's so crucial in this because it's also, it's, it's kind of the... Um, Like the prequel to the Bretton Woods system, and we see the beginning of the League of Nations and Woodrow Wilson and all this. But just before we move away from the Spanish American War and move toward World War uh, One, we talk about the Open Door Policy. I think we also should see this as kind of the the way I see the Open Door Policy is like good cop, bad cop, where the Europeans were the bad cop and the U.S. tried to be the good, pretended to be the good cop, right? But they're working, as you said, they're working together but you know this comes just a decade after the berlin conference in which the european cow- powers quite literally carved up africa they they had a map and they just picked who would get what part of africa and then that's essentially what they were doing to china and then the us comes with the open door policy while the european powers are carving up china and the us says you know we have this open door policy which is supposed to be the preferable alternative to the Europeans carving it up but it's a way of helping to facilitate to facilitate the European colonialists carving up China so it's exactly a kind of good cop bad cop policy and that leads us to World War 1 because you know um WB, w. E. Du Bois has this famous essay the African roots of the war in which he argues i think largely correctly maybe he overstates his argument a little bit but he argues that that the carving up of africa in the berlin conference and the european intercolonialist conflict over africa was was what helped fuel the rise of the conditions that led to world war 1 and and i would extend that to simply saying a battle over the colonies right not just africa but essentially this kind of good cop bad cop policy that the us was playing it it no longer worked by 1914 and it, it exploded in these internal contradictions of the battle in between different colonialist powers
1: yes these are all good points and especially want to thank you for making me think about the open door because as you were saying this this is directly correlated to what you were you were saying and i don't necessarily want to get too deep in details because some of these history aspects come up in later chapters and i'm assuming we're going to talk about them more deeply but the other thing about the open door that i wanted to mention was that it did represent a revision of the sort of status quo internationally Uh, between the u.s and the the european powers so i said that the u.s demanded to have open access to these places in china and so on but what i what i omitted but which you made me remember is that it was really about the spheres of influence that these other places had declared around china in the wake of the opium wars and so on the u.s was saying okay it's now going to be like free for all we are going to all be able to gang up on china and we're not going to have specific spheres of influence so this is an early example of the U.S. asserting its global management, or attempting to its glo- to assert its global management over co- over international commerce and uh, making the Europeans kind of accommodate them, uh, which they are successful to some extent. Although you still have these colonial empires in the in World War One and World War Two, uh, and it doesn't the so the U.S. those elements of the U.S. that really wanted to revise the international status quo are not. They don't really take over the American system and the American government until World War II. Uh, they finally do in World War One. They're not a they. They are entangled with Europe, but they're not able to come to a resolution that uh, gives them what they really want. And thus, you still have more imperial competition, which is what World War II really was. And Du Bois is. World War uh, One, pro- yeah. Well, in, in well, World War Two as well, but yeah, in World War Two, so, so that's what I'm what I'm getting at. In World War, but but let's if you're talking about Du Bois saying that about World War One, and he famously was he actually supported World War One for a time and then came to I think regret that. But well, it, it was it was
0: a formative experience in his political development, and he, yes. he continued to move to the left after that.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I would say that the African Imperial part is very very relevant and a big cause. But perhaps even more decisive would be the Ber- Berlin-Baghdad railway and the threat posed by German hegemony over the Balkans and thus the Middle East. And, and Baku, where, where not Baku, but um, around Basra, you had massive oil deposits discovered. That was really freaking out the British because a railroad would get around the Suez Canal, and that this leads. This is a big factor in World War One as being derived from this competition of empires. And the U.S. enters in a dubious way, backing one side, pretending to be neutral. And they leave uh, a bad uh, situation in terms of unpayable debts that cannot but lead to World War II eventually. And they rewrite what's interesting to think about this time period is the way that American business elites rewrote the history to suit their purposes of World War I. So people like Dean Acheson and other people after World War II they were saying that economic nationalism was the cause of the depression and thus World War II, right? So what are they leaving out? Well, they're leaving out the unpayable debts that their own class of you know, economic elites insisted stay in place, which were unpayable. And that was the reason if you, you need to earn foreign currency, so you put tariffs up at, in order to avoid having your country flooded with cheap imports to support your own industry. And uh, this, but it's done to pay debts that you have to pay that are in another currency. And so it was, but they omit that part and they just say, oh, it must have been the tariffs. But the tariffs were just a response and the economic nationalism was just response to unpayable debts. Uh, and this debt issue is a huge part of, of capitalism and uh, has to be seen as a, a a huge weapon or maybe one of the top weapons for uh, the prevailing economic elites in in our system that they can put you into debt that compounds uh, you know annually and uh you end up peonizing people and country, whole countries uh, through this mechanism and uh, they were so rapacious with it in the wake of World War one that it gave rise to the depression in World War two because they couldn 't divorce themselves from this sort of sacrosanctity of uh, debt mentality that they have.
2: Okay, so as we've already talked about, I mean, the unsustainable debts that were kind of saddled on the Allies and then passed on through them to Germany destabilized Europe and set the stage for the Great Depression and then World War II. So, Aaron, if you just want to close us out here, go over how we get from the settlement at the Treaty of Versailles, which is sort of presided over by J.P. Morgan and, and similar U.S. financial is- interests, and how that lands us all the way up at the start of World War II. So
1: the way that it plan- that it plays out in the United States, uh, you have the end of World War II. I'm sorry, the end of World War One, and it's a tumultuous period because you have a lot of dramatic things that happen besides this craziness of World War One, which was a slaughter on a scale never really seen before, and it kind of belied all the notions of progress that had been circulating in the in the Western world for the, the preceding couple of decades. Uh, And you have this Spanish flu, which kills a a whole lot of people, millions and millions of people. Uh, It's worse in Asia, but it also hits the US and Europe. And you have also the revolution which took place in Russia, you know, as a result of the war and the destabilization to Russian society caused by World War One, and also this their defeat to the um, to the Japanese in 1905. And so you have this communi- You have something else in the Western quasi Western world, which is this communist regime now that is fearful for people. And when Americans came back from the war, and they were expecting more prosperity, but there was kind of economic slump and other problems, this leads to the so called Red Summer, where there's a lot of labor unrest all across America, and the deep political establishment of the United States. Uh, you know, they have the Palmer Raids. They uh, basically deport people like Bill Haywood and Emma Goldman and persecute uh, the American left and really wipe them out this is the beginning of the deep political systems uh, you know organized system- systematic violence and suppression of radical forces uh, you know that are socialist more or less and uh, so this this the right is ascendant and uh, in American politics it's a conservative era in the 1920s are a time of uh, you know Profiteering and lawlessness and the, the whole scheme they set up post-World War I is really the US loans money to Germany so that Germany can pay the Allies, so that the Allies can pay the U.S. And to do that, you have to make lots of easy, you have to have easy credit available uh, in the U.S. So you have Bank of England and Federal Reserve policies of easy credit, which leads to enormous speculation in the stock market, massive profiteering in the stock market based on speculation. Uh, and you know. Gangsterism running amok in the u s because of uh prohibition, but prohibition taking place alongside a kind of economic financialized bubble boom uh, and you have the organized crime and people other other financial elites making lots and lots of money off of all of this off of the speculation but also off of you know alcohol and prohibition uh and this all comes crashing down with the when the Fed and the Bank of England decides that they're gonna uh, take away the punch bowl and raise interest rates and then this causes the Great Depression, big economic collapse. Different countries respond differently. The U.S. responds with a, because labor, I, be, I believe because labor is so powerful in the United States at this point in time, and radicalism in labor was more pronounced than before, even with the Red Scare and the Palmer Raids, they, you still had pretty radical movements. For whatever reasons, the U.S. establishment, enough of them back democratic forces and you get the New Deal in, in the U.S. And this wasn't without its discontents. So you had people like Morgan and Prescott Bush and the Duponts, and they actually wanted to overthrow Roosevelt with their own kind of semi, you know, deep state, nascent deep state, embryonic deep state uh, actors. But they didn't really have the the power to do it. Roosevelt won out, and uh, the New Deal prevails in the U.S. And, and but fascism is, is, uh, prevails in other countries. So, And they're backed by the people like Morgans and, and Rockefellers and so on, even as Rockefeller was also tight with the FDR. Yeah, the Bush. Prescott Bush. Bush. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah. So these, these are uh, ways that they the different countries deal with the Depression. You have fascism in Italy and uh, Germany and Spain, and you have this sort of welfare capitalism where you have the, the, a bigger welfare state. try to deal with the problems but it's so weak that the new deal just sort of acts as a tourniquet Uh, it doesn't have the massive mobilization of the economy and of industry that world war ii would provide but you did have this new deal regime emerge in the u.s and we go into more detail about this this later but when world war ii breaks out in the, the the u.s the the establishment of the u.s even with the most progressive regime the u.s has ever had uh like FDR and Henry Wallace as vice president, uh, they decide to uh, allow the Rockefellers uh, and this, you know the, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Council on Foreign Relations to receive State Department approval to plan U.S. entry into World War II and the post-war world. And this is where, in a top-down fashion, who even knows how involved FDR was in this decision? But you had the drafting of plans for the U.S. to enter and win in World War II and to do something different than they did after World War I. And that is to uh, obtain the mantle of hegemony over global capitalism uh, once they had secured the peace uh, after after the war. And this was the decision that was ultimately made, which was very fateful for the U.S. to uh, cross the Rubicon and become a global empire and seek hegemony over global capitalism uh, and this is what we're this is what we're dealing with today, uh, the, the later stages of this whole project.
0: Yeah, and as we said in in part one, there are a lot of topics in post World War II history that we're going to cover in very great detail. So we are going to end part two here, and we did have a, a you know a, in one hour we tried to cover two hundred years of history. I mean, even more, but. Of course, this is where you argue, and I think correctly, Aaron, this is where this moment of World War II and the post-World War II era, when the deep state really comes uh, becomes uh, formative in, in, in determining U.S. policy, of course, this is when key institutions in the deep state are created or institutions that work with the deep state, especially you know the CIA is created out of the SS and um, OSS, not the the well, there's a there's a, actually a little an, bit, there's a little an bit, an interesting historical rhyme there between the SS and the OSS, but anyway. Um, so I know we'll be doing future episodes focused on Bretton Woods, that's a huge part of your book, focused on um, the Korean War, focused on of course, Vietnam, uh, Bay of Pigs, JFK, all of that history that is, of course, after World War II, but I. I think that was a really good overview in as sh- brief of amount of time what we could of the 18th and 19th centuries, and we'll focus a lot more on the 20th centuries. I don't know if you wanted to add something else,
2: Seamus, before we conclude here. I think this is great. I'm excited for covering the rest of this series.
1: Yeah, me too. Thank you very much. This is great to be able to talk about this stuff after spending years and years writing all of this. Uh it's 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 really awesome and I'm I'm so glad you guys are doing this with me. And uh it's 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 fun already even though these things are kind of long. I, I'm pretty amped up just from sitting and talking about this. So this is this is really cool and uh, thanks a lot, gentlemen.
0: Yeah, and I'll say I guess uh maybe at the end of these episodes we should kind of do like a little hint of what the the subsequent part will be like a, uh, you know, All these TV shows do that. I guess they used to do that. They don't really do that anymore. But um, I guess so the next part we'll probably be talking about different analyses of imperialism, your idea of hegemony versus empire and different uh, scholarship in terms of foreign policy and international relations. We'll try to keep it more interesting and and not boring and academic. But I think in part three, when we talk about uh, analysis of imperialism, I think that'll be really important to help situate our, our future analysis, especially after World War II, to understand, you know, what, what imperialism actually is.
1: Yeah, and, and specifically how U.S. academia can't cope with it, because everybody that's been to college and taken history and social science courses, you're thinking like, I, why do I not know anything about the U.S. as an empire when it's like the, the, the overriding fact of, of a political and economic life? And I don't even really understand it. Why is that? So we're going to try to answer that question.